Now, this uh, section at the close of chapter 9 is a conclusion uh, statement for much that the Apostle has been saying about Christ's priesthood and fulfillment of all that was prophesied in the temple, particularly him as priest, the clean and pure priest uh, who was able and the rightful priest to enter God's presence. And normally a priest would then offer something in, in the temple, but Christ obviously went in as priest and actually offered himself the priest is the sacrifice. And he is concluding here with an application about the great significance of that one sacrifice, particularly in relation to our mortality and how imperative. It's not just that it is imperative, it's the only imperative, the only thing that matters uh, to a dying soul that's in sin, that's guilty before God, is that it's saved and cleansed by this priest because men die once and after this the judgment there's nothing else that could matter everything else is secondary to that there's two appearings that the apostle contrasts in verse 26 to 28 he contrasts christ's first appearing with his last appearing verse 26 he would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of the world, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That word there, their world, is the word age. Um, and it's referring to that there were thousands of years in an age before Christ came and that the one we're in is the final one. Jesus Christ, we might think of Jesus living a long time before us, but he's actually, he came at the, the end of the ages. It was a long time to wait for Jesus Christ, and, it, and that's what the apostle means. Uh, once at the end of the world, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now Christ appeared. He was revealed. He, he came onto the scene. He was born into this world and eventually had a three-year ministry and gave himself he appeared and that's god appearing in him and it was a humble appearance an appearance of humiliation um he wasn't revealing all his glory and might and power at all um it was for a specific purpose that he was under the law that he was replacing adam as head that he lived as a man and died as a man, yes, as the Son of God, but very much as a man. That was his first appearance. And the point of the Apostle is that he will appear again, and he will not appear that way. It will be different. It's the same person, but the appearance and unveiling is very different. The second time, verse 28, after he was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation that reference there to apart from sin obviously isn't saying that there was some kind of sin in the first appearance and then in this one he'll appear without that sin it's referring to the way in which he appeared the first time that it was in weakness 
and that it was to bear his people's sins. It looked very weak. Paul points that out. He said, Paul says he was crucified in weakness. It's an interesting thing to say, but there he is. His mission was to have sin upon him, the guilt and punishment of sin. And he was there as a humble servant, becoming obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So he appeared in weakness and humiliation. But the second time he will appear, friends, that the apostle refers to at the very, in the very last sentence of this chapter is an appearance in glory and exaltation and awe. Paul even calls it terror, terrible, mighty, immense. That is the way he will appear the second time with an unveiled glory when he comes in judgment. So there's two appearings. The, the text also speaks of two deaths in connection with that. It speaks of Christ's death. In verse 26, he had to suffer once. In verse 28, he was offered once to bear the sins of many. Christ had to die, as we read, because he was a testator. So Christ died, and then we received what was in his will. That's the point there when someone dies. But Christ died. So he appeared once, and he died. And he died because he was dying for us. Death didn't belong to him personally. Uh, it was experienced by him because of what was being transferred to him by God on your and my behalf. That's why he died. He died even though he wasn't a sinner. He died because he wasn't a sinner. Because he was bearing the sins of others. So that's one death. But then there's another death in verse 27. That it is appointed once for men to die. So two, two appearings and two deaths. He appeared once. And he shall appear a second time. He died once. And it's appointed for everyone in this room. Unless he arrives soon in glory. And we don't die physically. But if that isn't occurring. It is appointed as Paul says here for every man to die. And that's what I want to say to you. I'm going to preach this <clears throat> evangelistically, discriminatorily. I'm not going to caveat everything I say about death by saying, but if you're a believer, this won't happen to you. I trust that those who are true believers know something of what God will do with their own death. And later in the sermon, I will say something about what happens to the believer at death. But my burden is to lay upon anyone who's obviously unconverted or who thinks they're a Christian but are unconverted, uh, to speak to the children, to speak to anyone who has anything inside of them that's uncertain about their standing in Christ, and for me and for you as Christians to hear about this, because it's very good for us to hear about it. It's appointed for all of us to die it's going to happen unless he returns. But death is appointed for every man to die. 
Christ died and he went through it and many others have died and everyone who's alive right now is facing that appointment that arrangement by God death um, we should take urgent stock of it and just think about it for a few minutes this afternoon it's a serious thing obviously now we may not like to talk about death or think about it too much depending on what frame of mind we're in even as Christians and man has his own way of thinking about death and either ignoring it or repackaging it in a certain way so that it, it's bearable to think about a lot of people have thought about it at various points if there's an accident or a bereavement in the family but most of the time people aren't walking around thinking I'm going to die and it's serious and I need to deal with that now that is not how everyone arose this morning in the Dallas Metroplex area that's not what happened that's not what people are thinking they're thinking a lot of other things apart from that and the truth is that's ultimately the only thing that matters it's the most important thing about us that we're going to die there's a reason people don't think about it a lot or avoid it um, or that it doesn't sit easy with them uh, one of the reasons is that it's not natural anyway it's not supposed to be easy for us to think about it's completely against our nature and the way God designed us in his image we were made in knowledge righteousness and holiness at the beginning as living beings he breathed into the nostrils of Adam and he became a living soul a living being and we're like God in that way we're not designed to be neutral and to maybe live or maybe die the stamp on our instincts and nature is that we're supposed to live it, he designed our body that way he designed our mind and soul that way and the, our expectations and perceptions that come from all of that are based upon life we should want to go on we should want to thrive in life we should want our loves and our joys and our relationships and our knowledge and understanding always to increase as people that instinct is in man whether he's saved or not and there's various manifestations and ways people do that but it's this desire for life people say that I do not want to die we weren't made to die death is unnatural people will say to you death's a part of life or I found my way to reconcile myself to death you say to someone done it many times as a minister someone's in hospice or and even if they're not a believer they just say well we are born and then we die and and this is just part of life and it's uncomfortable but I'm okay with it I've lived a good life that's because they misunderstand what death is they say that it's not the death of the Bible at all or reality that they're reckoning with there they have found a way to handle that so people that say I'm okay with dying it's because they've been blinded to what death actually is death is not natural and it's not a part of life we say the sun rises and the seasons move 
and the apples fall from the tree and they rot on the ground and that's the cycle of life. That's a cycle of life unto death that's here now. And it's all very well when we're staring at trees and saying it. But that is not the way we should think of people at all. We weren't made to die. It's an unnatural severing and separation of the intricate union of body and soul that God designed. We're made to have bodies. Even Jesus has a body. We're made to have bodies. That's part of human nature. That separation is a violent and unnatural act. It's not meant to be that way. Just look at a body once the soul's removed from it, and you'll see how unnatural these things are. Past generations had to behold that a lot more than we do. It's sanitized and handled very carefully now. But we are not meant to die. We shouldn't be comfortable about it in a certain way. Um, it's not meant to be. Now, it's not just that it's not natural, but sin does something to the way we view it too. Um, sin, when it came in, it not only puts a judicial thing upon us where the soul and body have to be separated, but it affects us from birth in the way we think. And as we develop as children, and then as young adults, then adults, as we ever hear about death or encounter it, and it startles us, um, that is then reassessed by us as we live each day and we have to live our life and go about our business. And the way we think about it is always, always being filtered through a sinful mind. And by sinful, I don't specifically mean that we think of it in a bad way it's it's not the badness of it it's the blindness sin has darkened the mind it's blurred the glory of god and the reality of god that we once would have been able to see it's made us foolish because we cannot see the right knowledge and process it properly it is all sin then has also made us uh, selfish so we don't want to hear and accept what god or someone else might say about death to us we want to think about anything including death in a way that suits ourselves that's what sinners do they all look at the same situation and they think about it the way that suits themselves and that's no more true than in the in their own death and they'll say all kinds of things that flow from that foolishness. I believe I just cease to exist when I die. I'm fine with that. Or, well, no, no one can know what happens when you die. No one can know, the lost person says. They say, I don't know. But you don't know either. None of us know. So therefore, it's okay not to know. Therefore, death isn't that concerning. There's nothing I can do about it. And it doesn't terrify me because I don't really know what it is. Now, of all the, the great claims of the new atheist professors in their echelons uh, that played around with this truth for the last 20 years, and then the ignorant masses that bought their books and bought into this stuff, that's just people not thinking about this. These authors wrote foolish things about death, and these people just repeat it. They read it in Richard Dawkins or whatever, Christopher Hitchens, and they just repeat the stuff in this books. Even if they haven't read the book, they'll have heard it somewhere in the culture. 
it's now, it's as ubiquitous as Shakespeare now in the Western world. What these men have said, the profound impact they have should not be underestimated. They wrote these books, they were passed around colleges, everyone thinks what they think, it's filtered into families, and you'd be surprised who will say to you, well, no one knows what happens when you die, and you don't know either, uh, that's okay, or I just cease to exist, so I'm okay with that. Uh, none of those things are okay, friends. Um, the truth is, we are going to die, and since that's the case, we better reckon with it in its fullness and reality for what it is and what it involves, and not say foolish things that aren't worth being said, like, if you don't know, then that's okay. You would never treat any other situation in life like that. So you're going to relocate to another state. And I say to you, where are you going to live? And you say, I don't know. And you don't know. And that's okay. Even something as small as that, we would never apply that same principle. Or you have, you have a really unique bodily problem that needs surgery. It needs a specialist surgeon. And I say to you, so which surgeon are you like? Have you researched surgeons? No. I don't really know what's involved. I don't really know what they're going to do. I haven't really looked into doctors. I don't know and you don't know, and that's okay. It's not okay. And you would never do that in that situation. Which, is your child in school? Yes. Are they going to school tomorrow? Yes. What school do they go to? I don't know. I don't know. I drop them off in the area where there are several schools, and they go to school. You don't know and I don't know, and that's okay. These are much lower things. What's my child going to learn and what, how will they turn out? What will happen to my body? Will anything go wrong in surgery? Where am I going to live and what will that be like? And what is my job and what's the location and where will my house be? Now you give a man that, he'll get his laptop out and do a six-month research project. But you say to him, what happens when you die? I don't know. And I, I, I don't care. And you don't know either, by the way. Oh, we don't know? No one has died and come back to tell us. Oh, oh, oh yes, they have. Oh, yes, they have. No one treat That reinforces the point I just made about that we avoid it because it's not natural and we don't know how to think about it, but then sin applies to the stupidity and foolishness of us in the way anytime we approach death. Because if you think about house relocation, sin just leaves that alone and says, well, that's fine. And you go and you research it and you make sure. You're choosing a surgeon, you go and make sure. But all of a sudden, when someone asks you what happens when you die, all of a sudden, it doesn't matter. There's no consistency. And the accounting for the lack of consistency is because Satan and sin are very interested in death. It shows how terrified we are of it, that we're proud and foolish and small, that God has made it clear that we die. Everyone dies. Million of millions of people die. We hear it on the news all the time. Anyone who studied history, they're constantly encountered by death. Anyone who goes near a hospital is constantly encounter encountering death. But when it comes to you, all of a sudden, 
it's this unknown subject that no one can say that much about. Really? That is that shows you that it's not that it's not that death is unknowable. It's that there's something about it you don't want to know. Because you can research anything else, but most people wouldn't research death. They wouldn't research it online, and they wouldn't research it in here. We are going to die, so we better reckon with it. So why do we die? Why do we die? I'm still in my my first point here. I I didn't tell you what my first point was. It is that we die. Why do we die? We die because of the fall, friends. That's why we die. It's appointed for men to die once because of the fall. Death is judicial. It's judicial. And the nature of the fall, as I mentioned a few moments ago, we are created in knowledge and righteousness and holiness. That is how Adam and Eve were created. Knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. They were made to live, and they were in union with God when they were made. Adam, as the head, was made first, and he was over the animals, and he was in union with God. Eve was then made to be his counterpart and beside him, and together the two of them constituted humanity. Man and woman, equal, in the image of God, both Adam and Eve were in an intimate relationship with God. They were in covenant with him. That was a relationship of happiness, perfection, and love, and communion with knowledge of God, with a reign that was over the garden and would have been over the earth. They were married and in paradise in the garden, a a place that was created uh, to work well and pair well with our nature. And that's still the case. Eden was perfect in a way that we can't fully understand because it was pre-fall and pre-curse. But I don't want to over-mysticalize um, Eden to you. There is a reason when you go to New York or, or Dallas or Houston that when you go into the center of cities, they have these big parks and so on. There's a reason people want to go to zoos and things like that. There's a reason people love the Caribbean. There's a reason people love the Amazon rainforest. There's a reason people love the mountains. We don't want to live in a concrete jungle. We weren't made for that. We weren't made for that. We are actually paired with our natural environment is with the creation because it has a relationship to us. We were made to be over it. And not just uh, I'll arrange the creation, it's actually good for us. It's good for us. Studies show that depressed people, um, that doctors tell them to take walks in parks and it decreases their depression. There's programs in hospitals and so on that when people are confined for all that time that they're told to go and walk in the park, get some fresh air, be around the creation, and it reduces the amount of depression. That's because of what we were originally made for. We're meant to be in a beautiful environment with fruit and with crops and uh, to have a, a moderate labor and to be in marriage or in friendship or relationship that has no sin. That's what would make us happy. That's why we are unhappy. Uh, Even with Christ, we have unhappinesses. Um, 
it's a distorted and sinful world. We weren't made for that. We weren't made for conflict. We weren't made for those difficulties. We were made to be in union and in holiness and in fellowship and in society in the right environment and importantly for this text to be in fellowship with God and God placed in that garden among all of the vegetation that was there he assigned two trees for a special kind of um, sacramental uh, symbolic purpose the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and these were symbols of his covenant of life the tree of life showed them that if they fulfilled their probation, if they fulfilled their obedience to God and remained with him, at some point in the future, as our catechism teaches, they would have reached a full fruition with God and be raised to a higher state, the kind of state that Christ gives us in the gospel as the second Adam, something higher than just being in Eden. And that tree of life showed them that they would have eternal life, the very thing God, that Christ gives us in the gospel. Now, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was there, and people think of it very negatively and say, the lost say this. These, the new atheists in their books, why did he put a tree there to test them and trick them? Why did he allow sin and all of this? That tree was there as a symbol of their heart, love, and faithfulness to God. He put it there within the garden as he was in covenant with them in love, and Adam and Eve had full love flowing in their heart for God and for each other, and he put that there and he said to them, we love each other. We delight in each other. You're satisfied in me. I'm your God and I love you. I'm your father. I'm your creator. Keep in that love and the way you'll show me is don't eat from this. Don't eat from it. It will bring a knowledge of good and evil. It will bring evil into your life. There is a thing called sin. There is a thing called disobedience. He put that there so that they could express that love. Any husband and wife here knows this. I mean, you can't say to your husband and wife, you can't go into the town or into the city in case you see someone else. They're going to see other people there. And we have to trust them and say, if you love me, you wouldn't chase after that woman or that man. That's not a trick. That's just how love works. It's only sin that would ever be dissatisfied with the covenant you have and go after something else. Now, God is the same. Adam and Eve are in that covenant relationship with him. And he wasn't tricking them at all. They had everything they needed. That is because God would make them to be determinate beings. So God himself is a determinate being. He decrees and determines what he's going to do. The difference with him is that God's will is infinite and self-sufficient in himself. His will doesn't change. It's not dependent on anything else. His will just stays. It remains. It sources his own glory and being. God's will doesn't change in that way. His eternal decree, it doesn't change. He always knows what he's going to do. He's always intended to do it. It's always been fixed in his mind. There's no change. God's will is infinitely strong and dependent on no one. It remains. Adam and Eve being made in his image instead of being just biological machines had to have their own decision-making capability and, and to determine certain things. And they were safe 
as long as their will still depended on God, as long as it was sustained by him. Our wills are finite and dependent. They're affected by objects and people. We change our minds. God doesn't. And this is the way that God made humanity, Adam and Eve and all their offspring, so that they could live before him and live with a will that was always functioning and towards him. That it was real love. You can't have love without an exercised will. Love is a determined thing. I choose to love my wife. You choose to love your husband. That's will. And it's active. And we're doing it. Well, Adam and Eve had that. But they fell and that's why we die. That's when death came in. Now sometimes this is misunderstood. That, let's go back to the new atheists. Because you'll hear it. You send your kids to college and people will say this to them. You witness at work, people will say this to you. It's in the culture now. Death and judgment because they ate fruit. Death and judgment because they reached out and touched and took the fruit. This seems severe. It's not severe actually, but it seems severe. And then hell, I, I I can't even engage with an idea of a God like this. Well, no, friends. It isn't in innocence I made a mistake, I reached out and took the fruit. This was a conscious self-determined rebellion it was intentional it was intentional now we know she was deceived because the text tells us and paul tells us that the woman being deceived ate so she was deceived about the full nature of it and the consequences she she lied to herself about that as satan lied to her but let's not underestimate what took place uh, there and why we die and why Adam and Eve and every one of us receives the death penalty for being a sinner. It, it, is, it is a rebellion. It, it is going against your sovereign. Wholesale rebellion. Uh, they wanted the knowledge of good and evil. They listened to what Satan said about being, you shall be as gods yourself. And Eve wanted that. That's what happened. And it was only once that process occurred that then she reached out and took the fruit. Now you think about the nature of that that sin. Was it just I took fruit? No, she coveted it. I spoke about covetousness this morning and prayed about it in the morning service. There it is at the very beginning. She, she, the first thing born there is the covetousness. I want, I see, I, I want that knowledge of good and evil. I want to be a God myself. I want to be autonomous. I want to determine what I'm going to do. I'm not going to say, I'm not going to do what God says to do. She stole in her heart. She took fruit that was not hers. She was near a tree and interacting with it when she shouldn't have been. She, she's stealing. She's literally trespassing. So it's not just eating fruit. Coveting, stealing, trespassing, Uh, That's the eighth commandment, the tenth commandment, then usurping authority, the fifth commandment. She knew God was there, she knew what commands had been given, she knew what her husband had said to her too, and she broke all that authority by listening to Satan and deciding to do what she did, the fifth commandment. She 
with the knowledge she had of God and having seen God and heard from God, she despised his love and his goodness for all he had given. She diminished the bounty of what had been given. And she listened to the augmented lie about what restriction was upon her. So she wasn't charitable and loving in her heart towards God. So there she's breaking the first commandment and the sixth commandment. She's not honoring God for who he is and believing his word and trusting in what he's given and what he said and trusting what he said would happen to her and Adam if they disobeyed. So she breaks the first commandment there and then heeds Satan. She places Satan's word and promises in front of God's and then carries out what Satan wants her to do. So she's worshipping Satan at that point and herself, not God. She's breaking the second commandment and the first commandment. She disbelieves his word and sins in his holy garden and therefore breaks the third commandment. She takes his name in vain and his ordinances and his commands and she treats them with a slightness rather than the weight and the glory and the seriousness that they deserve. You see, you never just take fruit, my friend, and you never just look at a woman to lust after her, and you never just resent someone, and you never just lie. Our hearts do these things, and it's there at the beginning. It's a wholesale rebellion. All that was initially beginning to happen in Eve, and her and Adam, though they might not have put it this way, wanted God off the throne. They didn't want to live under him, but they wanted a certain freedom and to have that knowledge for themselves and listen to the serpent that they could be as gods. And they basically then murdered God in their hearts. And they went into enmity with God and they fell, our standards tell us, the fall. And as Spurgeon said, this isn't a fall in which you break your finger. This is a fall in which you break your neck. This is severe. They plunge from light to darkness. They go from loving the Lord to enmity. They go from being his servants to being his enemies. They go from being perfectly holy and righteous to breaking all of those commandments. They go from being clean in body and in spirit, an unsullied soul, to spiritual corruption and contamination, poison. They fall. They fall. And this is the relationship that you and I have with sin. And the lost person. This is why man dies. You haven't just taken this or thought this. It, sin is always worse than that, and you'll recognize it in yourself. You do what Eve does. You may have sins of infirmity or weakness. You may get caught out by a sin. In your ignorance, in your foolishness, you may become entangled in a sin. But most sins run like this. <clears throat> the lust, the speech, or the selfishness, the anger, the despising, the lying, the breaches of his holy name, breaches of loves, thefts, Sabbath, time, property, waste, whatever the sin is, you look at it in the face, it's before you for consideration, you assess it momentarily, you know something is about it wrong, it stands there alluding you and telling you that it's wrong, you know that God probably thinks it's wrong and that he hates it. But what your will says is this. It goes over that, that consideration and it says this. I don't care. I don't care that it's wrong. 
I'm not sure exactly what the outcome will be, but I don't really care. I don't care if God thinks it's wrong. I'm doing it anyway. That is despising God and is a bold usurpation and rebellion against the God who has given you life, breath, your body, your mind, your conscience. Every provision in your life at the moment is a sheer gift from him. And the the evil of sin is that while you're within it, with the mind he gave you and the body he gave you, you look at sin, God tells you that's wrong, and you say, I don't care. It's just easier if I do this right now. I don't care. So all sins are, are a, a slight act of deicide. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an indirect way of just murdering God. You're looking at him and saying, I, I will not honor you. I'm just going to slight you to your face and have this murderous action to you because I don't care that you're my sovereign. It's treason, friend. That's what sin is treason now the lost you see when the lost say oh it seems so severe well i hope after explaining all that to you you don't see death as severe when you consider it with the great holiness and honor and love and might of god and that he's worthy of obedience praise and and our awe when you're that high and you're that great and the inhabitants of the earth are as grasshoppers even if they're in your image, and you look at them, and they are behaving like that to you, you are going to have a problem with it. And they died. They experienced the spiritual death, which was an immediate severing of their relationship with God in love and covenant, in enmity with them, cut off from God, not in union with him, not knowing him as he is, feeding and dreading, and kind of resenting him at the same time hiding in the garden adam the woman you gave me the woman you gave me hiding as robert candlish says they resent him and are terrified of him at the same time that's what sin does the lost there are lost people out there and they wouldn't admit it to you but they're terrified of god so they have to re recast him in the play as a fictional character that isn't going to do anything to them they are afraid of him spiritual death physical death at that moment though they didn't drop down dead the principle of poison and decay began to work through their natures and they began to decay in the second law of thermodynamics and uh, the the replication of cells was not perfect and so on and their body begins to disintegrate you don't see it right away but they're dying they're dying as every child is born and as we grow we are dying we are spiritually dead to god and we're dying physically because we've sinned against him and the death penalty is upon us and that death penalty will be finalized from a spiritual physical death to an eternal death that we'll see in a few moments precisely what all that involves but we die spiritually we die physically and we will be in an eternal state of death and destruction. That's the penalty for rebelling in pride against God. We die. Secondly, we die once. And this is a short point. 
but it's important. And it's from the words of the apostle. Christ died once, he says, in verse 26. And you and I, in verse 27, we die once. You fail a class, you can take it again. You lose your job, you can get another job. There's lots of repetition. But you die once. And this is, this is serious stuff. There's this short period called your life. It's a few decades long. And then there's this line, this threshold, and it's black beyond it. You don't know how long that thing goes. And you know that once you hit that wall, once you hit that threshold, and you go into that blackness, that it's for a very long time, and whatever occurs beyond that line, it will remain as it is. That's called death. Then it only happens to you once. And there's nothing more important than figuring out between now and that point exactly what's going to happen at that point. It only happens once and then the judgment the tree falls where it lies and it remains the same the the end of the book of revelation says the just shall remain unjust the filthy shall remain filthy the state in which you die you will remain before god now the atheist will just come back at that and say but i don't believe there is something on the other side of it or we can't know. Or I just believe I'll cease to exist. We just I don't know what's on the other side of that. And you're not going to tell me. I don't know what's on the other side of that. Really? As I said earlier, there are so many things in life that you just would not allow that to do. You put your kids in a car. You're going on a highway. You know there are going to be accidents. There's a semi-truck coming the other way. And you're very careful about what you do. You would never say to someone, well, what's going to happen if you turn left here? And you say, well, no one can know. So I'm not going to prepare for it. Not going to prepare for it? Why would you put your seatbelts on your children? Why are you giving them medicine all the time? Why are you getting checkups? Why do you, why do, you do these things? Why are you worried about your bank account? Your investments get affected or uh, there's some cutbacks at your job and your salary halves immediately and you know you can't pay for things and so on. There's an immediate reaction to deal with it. But someone tells you that in a couple of decades, if you're blessed to live that long, there's this abyss, this cavernous abyss that's black and unknown to you. And man says, I'm just going to jump into it and I don't know what's there. Were your own soul and your wife and kids? You would do that. You would never jump off a cliff that way or jump out of an airplane that way. You would never treat any other circumstance in life that way. And these are tiny compared to this. If I fall when I'm on the ladder and I break my leg, the hospital can do something about it. If I get COVID, if I say I don't care, I'll go into that room with these people that are coughing. Oh, I got COVID. I have a couple of rough weeks in which I feel like I'm dying. But then I come out of it. And people make provisions for all these things. But then they'll look you dead in the face and say, I'll plummet into the black abyss. And it's funny because not only do I not know, but you pastor or you Christian, you don't know either. Ha ha. You see the madness of sin. The madness and the blindness of sin. 
You're going to die. Your relationship with your wife will be gone. Your relationship with your children will be gone. You won't be able to do anything about it and you have no idea what's on the other side of it. And you're going to tell me that you don't know. Why don't you know? Have you tried to find out? Have you got on your knees and asked God to reveal himself to you? Have you read the four Gospels? Have you read Paul's letters? Oh, you'll read about actors and sports stars. But you wouldn't read the Bible. Why is that? You don't want to know. Why? Because you're hiding in the garden like Adam did behind the trees. He wouldn't come. His voice wouldn't come. He did come. His voice did come. Hiding behind the trees with fig leaves. Covering covering yourselves up. And saying, I don't know what will happen to me. You don't know. Have you never seen a body put in the ground? Where are these people? The body's in the ground. The person isn't down there. Where did they go? I'm going to cast my chips on non-existence. You're going to gamble with your soul for eternity. A gamble. A gamble. I'm placing my chips on there's nothing beyond that line and I wouldn't even be conscious. How do you know that? I don't know. I don't know. But I'm willing to place my chips there. With your soul. Would you put your child's life on that? Would you, would you if you had $2 million, would you put that on that? But you'd do it with your soul? I think what we're seeing here is that the person who talks this way doesn't want to know. It's not that it, you can't know. We do know what happens when someone dies. Even the lost know that the person goes on and they say certain things about where they are and that they're looking down on me and things like this. The idea that we just can't exist is very irrational even to the lost person's mind. They'll say it. They, they get themselves into a position where in their pride they're willing to say it to you. I don't believe I will exist. Ugh, really? Really? That makes everything you do pointless. Every single thing you do in your life is pointless. But I'm going to leave it for my wife and children. They're going to die too. And they won't exist or have consciousness. But they'll pass it to their children. They're going to die too and not exist anymore. It's meaningless until the sun burns the earth and there's no one left. What's the point exactly? I don't think there is a point. But I don't think you know the point either, Pastor. No, we do know the point. We don't say crazy things. Saying the Son of God was raised from the dead is nothing compared to that madness. Son of God rising from the dead, eternal life, regeneration, resurrection at the end. Uh, the lost believe in the resurrection, by the way. Can I say that to you? The lost believe in the great resurrection. We believe that bodies will be reconstituted at the end on Jesus' return and they'll all be raised to life, functioning bodies to live. The lost actually believe that. They believe that in the sea and in ponds and a primitive earth, that out of a mass of chemicals and proteins, beings were brought together through a slow process and rose onto their two feet and were given brains and a soul and self-consciousness and love. They believe that happens. They believe in a much crazier miracle 
than the general resurrection at the end. I believe that a God who designed the body and who's infinite in power can raise it like that. That's what I believe. That's rational. What's not rational is that you think it happened in a pond all by itself. They believe in a resurrection. They just think it happened at the very beginning. That everything that's alive today arose out of nothing. I believe we will rise at the end of time because Christ will raise the body with his infinite divine power. We die once. You better get ready to die for your soul to depart from your body. For your body to expire and your soul to cross that line into the black abyss. That's a big deal. You better get ready for that moment. We die, we die once, and then the judgment, verse 27. It is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. Christ went before his father when he died. And Paul says he was justified in the spirit and made atonement for our sins. When we die, we go before a judgment too. We go before God um, at death, or maybe I'll put it, I'll just put it the way it is biblically. The soul returns to the God who made it. When someone dies, their soul returns to the God who made it. Who made it rational, conscious, feeling. That person, that spirit that's in us, us. When a man or woman or child dies, their spirit, their person, returns to the God who made them. If someone if someone dies outside of Christ, their spirit returns to the God who made it and he places that person in a lost eternity in hell. When a Christian dies, they return to the God who made them and they're made perfect in holiness and have the full fruition of the glory of the Father and Son and the Spirit. Whether God's extents, any extensive judgment happens at that moment or if it's just an initial judgment that then is then extended when God raises us all from the dead is another point. But we will be brought before the judgment seat of Christ. And that is what the apostle is referring to. There will be a judgment. The point of Romans 9 is anyone who's in Christ and under the blood will be judged in him. But all other men will be judged outside of Christ. When, and this I'm speaking to, the, to a lost person, when a lost person dies, when they are rushed to the judgment of God, they will be before the throne of Almighty God, the judge of all the earth, and the books will be opened, and they 
will be judged according to the covenant of works, not the covenant of grace. The covenant of life, the covenant of works that was made with Adam will judge these people. That is the law of their own nature, the way they were made to know God and to follow his commandments. It's part of being human. It's stamped on our very nature, the covenant of works, God's law. You can call them the Ten Commandments. You don't need to give them a number. Those principles, those moral attributes of God, they're stamped on our nature. We know they're wrong. And we will be judged according to it, whether we have done good or evil. And a man may say, I don't think that's fair. I didn't really know about it. And if I go before God, I'll tell him I don't think it's fair. I'll find a way to discuss it with him. I don't think God would be so unreasonable. I'm not that unreasonable with my children. And if they break a rule in the house, I don't convey wrath. And especially if they didn't know what the rules were, they were just being silly. Why would God treat me that way? This is the way the lost person thinks. I know because I speak to them. This is the way they think. Uh, our sin against God is a lot worse than your child breaking a rule in a home. I hope we've seen that. And secondly, we do know. We do know. It's written on the creation. And the lost person says they don't know, but they have lied to themselves and defied God every day that they've got themselves into this position of saying he's not there and he doesn't exist and so on. It is clear. I say this as a minister of the gospel. In the stars and the expanse above us and the moon and the seasons and the rising of the sun and all the vegetation that arises from it, the beautiful sky and the clouds and the, the, the water system of the earth, um, all the forests and mountains and lagoons and shores and the sea life, the shore life, the deep sea life, the forest and mountain life, the rainforest life. It's incredible. And I mean that literally. For an atheist to say it happened by itself is incredible. It is clear that it's all fearfully and wonderfully made. It is crystal clear. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiworks. And literally in the Hebrew, his signature is in the heavens. He has written his signature. It says, I am. Paul says it. It is visible. His invisible attributes are visible, being understood by the things that are made. His eternal power in Godhead. The lost know when they look around and they see all that I just described and they go on vacation and they go for runs in the mountains and take their kids for walks in the forest. And when they put their children to bed at night and they watch their child, child's chest go up and down, and when their children smile and look at them with the beautiful colors of their eyes, the lost know that God has made all this. They suppress it in unrighteousness, but they know it is clear that a wise and infinite, omnipotent God has made all of this they know and it's written on their soul it isn't just written in the heavens or on the animal kingdom it's written in the soul Paul says 
that when we justify or disapprove of the acts that we do, right and wrong, we are letting everyone know that we know the law of God is stamped upon our hearts. We know we're under a moral law. We know. The lost will tell you, you offended me by saying that. Or, I don't like the way you treat me. You're wrong. And they'll speak about right and wrong and then tell you they don't know if there's a God or what happens when we die. How foolish. If there is no God, if there is no eternal spirit, if there is no law, all there are are carbon atoms. That's it. That's it. Helium and the other atomic structures. That's all there is if there is no soul and there's no eternal spirit. If you take God out of the universe and you take undying soul out of us, all you're left with is carbon atoms, hydrogen and so on. And I say to someone that, that it, if your child is attacked w with a baseball bat or if that person attacks this lectern with a baseball bat, all they're doing is rearranging the atoms. It doesn't matter. It's just, it's just atoms. I'll break this and you can break a person. What's the difference? It's just carbon. It doesn't have any spirit. There's no, there's no ultimate reality. It's just stuff. It's no different than catching a fish. It's no different than catching a fish and eating it. All you're doing is rearranging atoms. If they need to go into your stomach, fine. What's the big deal? But no one lives like that. No one lives like that. Someone walks out and sees that a truck's about to hit a dog and their child. No, no one lives as though everything is just carbon. No one lives that way. That's because things aren't that way. We have a, a sense of deity. And that's a big problem for any lost person because when you stand before God and say, I didn't know you were there. I didn't know you made the world. He's just going to say, not good enough. You lie. You, there's enough for you to know I was there and seek me. And you knew what was right and wrong. You knew my commandments. People told you certain things were wrong and that to live a certain way was wrong. All of the Ten Commandments with your covetousness, stealing, trespassing, all these desires, everything you do, you're lying. It's all there and you knew it was wrong. And then you refused the gospel anytime someone came to you. Now that person has gone into the abyss and then they stand before God and God will judge them on their works and weigh them in a scale every single thing that they've done and it will all be tainted by sin law breaking he will judge you by what you've done and what you knew in the creation and in your own conscience and he will judge you by everything he gave you you breathed his air you ate his food you drank his water you traveled his world, you basked in his sunshine, you enjoyed relationships of friendship and marriage with creatures he made, enjoying their love, which is an imitation of his love, and you raised children that God gave you, and you denied even telling them about God. You robbed them of their souls, 
and didn't tell your children about God. You said to them, there probably isn't a God, but I'm not going to force your opinion. You believe what you want to believe. That's what a father and mother says. And then they're going to stand before God and God's not going to judge them for it. This is treachery. He will judge you by everything he's given you. And you, and I have to close with this. That judgment is not just to stand at the judgment seat. It goes to the place of judgment into hell itself. And he will send the lost person, as Jesus says, into the outer darkness and where the fire is not quenched and the worm dieth not. A dump. A burning dump valley outside of Jerusalem where there is only death and decay and devastation. That's why Jesus uses Gehenna, hell. A place of utter devastation and woe and misery and wrath and judgment. You will go there because you have done all this and you took the life God gave you and you selfishly gorged in it yourself, denied him, broke all of his commandments, and then did it for others too, and your own family and children. And you will stand before God, and he will say unto you, Away from me, you who practice lawlessness. Hell is the fruition of our self-determination, of doing our own will of the right results of our own lifestyle we say we don't want there to be a god and we don't want to know god that is fulfilled in hell we say i don't want to obey your commandments because i like lust i like doing what i want to do i like living how i please so in hell all that you'll be left to is yourself god will remove all his restraint all of his goodness, all of his love, all of his light. In that place, there is no grace. There is nothing good in hell. No one smiles in hell. There is no joy. There isn't good conversation. There isn't pleasantness. There isn't refreshment. The man who went to hell that Jesus told in his parable asked for just a drop of water to relieve him. There's nothing in hell, spiritually or physically, to bring any relief. It's humanity minus God, with God's anger upon the humanity. That is devastating. Friend, that place is permanent. It is a place of woe. It is a place where death is sealed, where you're in a constant state of mental, spiritual, and physical decay. You think depression's bad? It's nothing compared to hell. Think about the worst day you've had, the most miserable you've ever been. That place is misery epitomized. It's evil. It's away from the life and light of God. Don't go to that place. There is a gospel. It was told to Eve. 
it was promised right away that a seed would crush the head of the serpent. There is a gospel. You've heard it in this place many times. That, who, that if you believe in Christ and submit to him and follow him and receive and lay hold of Jesus Christ, then the law fulfilled by him will be yours. And all the infractions and guilt and your crazy rebellion against God it will be transformed, it will be deleted, and your soul will be turned from saying, I want to self-determine. I want to live in sin. I don't want to follow God's law. And you will become what Adam should have been, a lover of God's will, a lover of the one who walks in the garden in the cool of the day, a lover of the covenant God, a lover of life, and you will receive all the blessings of life. My friend... It's appointed for you and me to die soon. All of us should make sure that what's beyond that line is taken care of now. For you have no idea what a day may bring unto you. It's appointed by God and he knows the exact day and hour that each of you and me are going to die. He knows. He knows how it will make our wives and husbands weep. He knows if there are children who are going to die. God knows the appointment. You don't. But he's told you now. Deal with it and be ready. May God grant that it would be so. Let us.